so The Honours is set in 1935 and it stars a 13-year-old girl called Delphine who is obsessed by guns and war and adventure and her life has some of those things adjacent to it but largely she's bored and she finds herself at a remote country house with her mother and her father who's a veteran of the Great War and she starts to discover mysterious things going on at the house. There's a secret society who meet there who her parents have joined who she can't quite figure out. She discovers secret passages in the walls of the house. She discovers tunnels beneath the house and she becomes convinced that the society is a front for a much greater conspiracy, one that may threaten all of Great Britain. And because of who she is and because of the kind of story she's read, she is not going to take it lying down and she sets about, even though she's only 13, even though no adults in the house take her seriously, she sets about trying to unravel it and trying ultimately to find allies and stop it. I was really fascinated by the history of secret societies in the UK, the real history, not, you know, I'm not somebody who believes that we are, that the world is controlled by the this new world order, by the Illuminati, but I do believe in the mythos of those things. I do believe that people believe that those things exist, and I do know that some elements, some kernels are of fact around, you know, like the Freemasons exist. The Masons exist as an organisation. That that they that is true, um, and it's true that they have that there has have been conspiracies of silence by people who are members of the Masons. I know that I've spoken to people I know within the police that there were periods in the UK where there would be one evidence room for non-Masons and one evidence room for Masons sometimes. I know that in America there are branches of the of the of the there have been Masonic lodges. I mean, there was a point in American history where fifty percent of the American working population were members of some fraternal order or another. And when you consider that the fraternal orders were men only, there were occasionally associate branches that allowed women in some capacity, then you see that it's much more than 50% of men were members of those lodges. This huge, this huge membership of people joining these kind of pseudo orders, some of which had mystery cult elements and many of which were deeply racist not all you know some were progressive some were like out and out uh you know like were trade unions and all sorts of things represented by that term fraternal orders but like in the 1920s and 30s i'm talking uh many of whom were ways of uh, workers clubbing together to cover insurance for one another so they'd all be paying into a pot and if somebody died in an industrial accident or uh 
you know, from a heart attack or something, there'd be money to uh, support their families. You know, not all of it's nefarious. Some some of those fraternal orders existed because of prohibition, right? And they get to have club bars that no one is allowed in and then mysteriously start selling alcohol, right? So there was, you know, there's lots of reasons why these things exist. There are truths behind it, but they're just not... They're, they're, they're not huge conspiracy things. And I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated by the mix of the fictitious and the wild and the uh, garishly colourful and what actually went on. You know, there were secret societies in Great Britain, but you often find what went on behind closed doors were lots of intellectuals uh, at each other's throats like you read the history of a lot of secret societies around the world and you know some of them are terrorist sects sects right and but most of the time then the reason i don't believe in like big world conspiracies is because they almost always fall apart with factional disputes like human beings are not great at cooperating at that kind of level and most conspiracies they they, they split there's a schism different leaders take different philosophical paths and the movement falls apart i found that i found that fascinating uh there's there's a thing about conspiratorial sort of thinking that is strangely positive actually because it assumes that human beings or a certain sort of subset of human beings are hugely ingenious are brilliant at working together can keep secrets are incredibly competent uh and it's very flattering actually and also want to con care enough about things like power to con they care about that to control us and it's always them and us isn't it there's no chance that we could be part of it and i just found all of that thinking and the paranoid mode of thinking that has become so dominant in modern populist uh, politics these days with fake news and Trumpism and all of those things. I don't think any of these things are new. Um, and I, I wanted to write about them. And I also just wanted to write a character who was cool. So the story stars Delphine and she is obsessed with guns and she is active and she doesn't take shit. And I'm not like that at all. One, I'm not obsessed with guns. But two, I'm easily hurt I want people to like me and approve of me. Uh, you know, I I feel vulnerable a lot of the time. I get scared. I have an I have a panic disorder. It was nice making a kind of fantasy avatar who is very sure of what she believes in, and doesn't take shit and goes out and. And to be fair, it also makes mistakes. I think when you're writing these things as a an author. You, I think you end up sometimes writing yourself a little cautionary tale that justifies the status quo. You know, you get that in a lot of stories, don't you? It's like the, the baddies want to create eternal life, but at a terrible cost. And it's to make us feel that actually the status quo isn't so bad. Well, it's good that we don't have eternal life because look, when you have eternal life, it gives you unstoppable diarrhea. So maybe we shouldn't mess with mother nature. You know, this is why I'm not a great fan of like black mirror style, science, dark science fiction that tends towards p 
pearl-clutching Ludditism, basically. We should never have played God. Look what happened when we innovated. It came to bite us on the backsides. Well, we have vaccines now and people can have heart surgery and I'm able to record this and people are set free by technology. I think it's interesting to me how so much popular science fiction basically basically says innovation is scary and we're doomed to be destroyed by it you know i th- i and and and, I, and I, I think i'm guilty of that in my own writing as well to an extent that uh you know you 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 take antagonists and you give them really Im- interesting exciting ambitions and then you show why those ambitions are doomed and evil. Uh, I don't think I quite do that in my story, but um, I think it's always a temptation, isn't it, to have a? And I think, you know, you end up with a protagonist who pursues the status quo. But you know, I also think Delphine's more interesting than that. And I think you know, through what she learns in the story, um, she becomes a different person and becomes somebody who's sense of what one should pursue uh shifts proportionally and that's why for me and hello by the way this is death of a thousand cuts and this is a writing ramble episode so it's not scripted i'm just talking to you about some stuff about my books for the honors week and i wanted to get on to talk about the ice house because that's going to be the sequel to the honors and so it's been i've been writing something in the same world following on from the story because like my publishers i love canongate they're amazing and they've been so good to me um they're also a literary publisher generally and the idea of having books that you know fantasy like trilogies and stuff was a bit alien to them and definitely my publishers pushed to not mention that the honors was the first in a series and so a lot of people got to the end of the honours and a lot of reviews came back. And because we hadn't mentioned that it was the first book in a series, they were like, in a trilogy, they were like, oh, it's good. There's a few open ends. There's a few open ends at the uh, the close of play. I feel like a few things haven't been answered. Be good to have a sequel. And I was like, God, well, I'm fucking writing it. All right. Like, there's no reason why you should know that it's coming. But you're you're right. The ending isn't an ending. There's more. And it does like bring some of the things in the book to a close. There's definitely an arc to it, but there's some things that go unanswered. And the Ice House answers all of them. So the Ice House is set... You know, the Honours is set in Norfolk in 1935, starring this girl, Delphine. The Ice House is set in... 2009 and it stars Delphine and she's 86 coming on 87 Um, and this is the book I always meant to write the honours was originally just going to be the prologue to this book Uh, it got bigger and I wanted to write, I always wanted to write about someone who is older than me. I feel like there are so few elderly 
protagonists they're often reduced to or sidelined as kind of mentor figures i think we've got a real problem with a terrible unacknowledged problem with ageism in our society and in our country and i'm i'm guilty of it i'm not this isn't me sort of starting to wag my finger and saying in a peremptory way and saying everyone except me has this problem but i think uh we definitely got a blind spot for it in on the progressive left as well. Lots of, you know, we talk about intersectionality, but ageism is something that is people are strangely resistant to get to grips with. And as a result, like a lot of uh, a lot of uh, older people, sort of their politics shift to the right because progressive politics is often restricted especially in this online age to do you do you have access to twitter and facebook do you have this huge social network and cultural capital that allows you to negotiate different blog have you read the think pieces um because they're going to give you lots of vocabulary and ways of accepted ways of thinking and arguments which you then need to be able to deploy to negotiate very complex social spaces um because if you fail to do those things, um, then you will uh, kick off these little, you will trigger these little um, social tripwires and these spaces and you will be eaten alive for social capital by other progressives for saying the wrong thing. And that's not me being kind of like all kind of uh, right wing and saying oh, the illiberal illiberals, but it's true. It is true. It's just a fact and no one wants to acknowledge it because it's rhetorically inconvenient that these spaces are largely a conversation between uh middle class graduates because if you're working class or old <laughs> you might not have learned the right words you might not have learned the right arguments you might not have had spent time reading all the think pieces you might not have loads of followers on Twitter or Facebook, you might not be as adept at negotiating those spaces. You might not be as interested in negotiating those spaces. You might not even use terminology like negotiating those spaces. And so you're out of the conversation. You don't count. And nobody really shares think pieces about how we treat the elderly because the audience isn't there because there's not an audience. It doesn't affect them. It, what we share are things that we feel that affect us directly uh, and that we feel and, and so the, the, the there's a huge problem with ageism and um, I just wanted to it was just I think originally I just wanted to write about human beings who also happen to be old and are as real as anyone else uh, and aren't marginalised for their age and aren't lesser and aren't and the primary thing about them isn't just that they're old they're people and it turned out the only way i could really do that convincingly for myself was to write delphine's entire life originally her childhood was just going to be a sort of a hint before we got to the meat of the book in the end it ended up being the honors there was more that i wanted to say much more happened it was that incident what happens to her when she's 13 is actually so huge that it needed a whole novel for me to get my head around it and deal with it because it's traumatic it's 
colossal. It's it's it, it's flavoury, <laughs> and um, I just got obsessed with it, and I got lost in it, and I wrote a whole book that I'm really proud of. But the ice house is really where it, it was all heading, and that's why there's bits in the honours that won't make sense until you've read the ice house and then you see what they're alluding to because I needed to have all that planted in there like the ice house isn't an afterthought where my publishers came back to me and said would you like to write a second book set in this world I don't think it you know they no one was particularly invested in my doing that it's me who was like this is the book I have to write I don't have a choice and it's taken me four years to write and there's various reasons behind that I you know lots of things have happened in my life um I've had some mental health issues, which I've talked about on the show, and that slowed me down. I had some re a real period of anxiety and hating writing and being so scared, especially when my first book came out and I became like a proper published novelist. I became really, really anxious about writing and fucking up and letting down people who'd love the honours. That's the worst thing. I've mentioned this before, but that was the hardest thing, was getting good reviews and getting people emailing me going, I love the book. Now, I'm not just saying this so I can slip in like, oh, people love my book, right? But it sold pretty well and people liked it. And that, I've, it sounds like such a fucking luxury problem because it is, but it stopped me writing and I was really ill and I've had some of the worst mental health I've ever had. I, mean, I don't think that's the only reason, but um, you know that bit at the end of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, I should say, the uh, the original movie, where at the end Willy Wonka turns to Charlie and says, "But Charlie, don't forget about what happened to the boy who suddenly got what he always wanted." And Charlie says, "What's that?" And Willy Wonka says. He realised that his goals had just been a way of postponing dealing with the inner pain he felt and a free-floating existential angst at the deep-seated knowledge that human beings are just briefly sentient aggregations of meat destined to rot down into the soil, all memories, feelings and experiences of people they loved destroyed and obliterated forever and all eternity. He didn't say that. He said um, he lived happily ever after. But that's a lie. Um, I thought that becoming a published novelist, since it was my life stream, would make me finally OK with myself and like myself. And it turned out I didn't. Um, it just created another another fortress that I had to defend and not lose because now my identity was partly novelist. And it's taken me a while to heal from that. It's taken me a while to go, actually, I'm a nice person and I'm worthwhile whether eating an apple or collecting an award. I haven't collected many awards in my time, but um, and also that I and also to remember the most positive and happy thing of all, which I, you know, I remembered really through the work I did doing the Couch to 80K writing bootcamp. People have said to me, oh, that's very generous you did that. It was purely selfish, my motivations. It was for me. I did it for me to remind myself why I love writing. That's why I put it out there, not because I'm a, some some philanthropist who wanted to help people. I like that it's helped people. Of course I do. I'm really fucking psyched that people are writing stuff off the back of it. That makes me feel amazing. I'm so inspired by all the people who've done it. But you know what? I did it because I wanted I, I was like, 
I can't keep writing unless I remember why I love writing. And now today I can say to you with absolute certainty, I'm going to write this afternoon. I'm going to fucking love it. I've done 40k of my new work in progress. I am enjoying it so much. Is it perfect? No. Is it good? In places and in places it's shit. But I'm having a great time and I'm discovering a world and I love that. And I had that experience actually with some of the early parts of writing The Ice House. But when my book came out, I became paralysed with fear of fucking up. And it took, it's taken me a, a long walk to get back to that. And the Ice House had so much work put into it. I've said this before, but I did a quarter of a million words was the first draft. A quarter of a million words. Right? Average novel, 90,000 words. That's three novels. Give or take. Three fucking novels I wrote in first draft. And I've cut it down now to... Uh, 130,000 words after I sent it to my agent and she looked at the word count and I got I sent it when I'd finished it I sent it to my agent and I got like oh my god we laugh about it now <laughs> he sent me an email eight minutes later having opened the file and clicked the word count and her email back to me just said eek <laughs> Eek. And you need someone like that to hold your feet to the fire, but you don't always appreciate it at the time. It's a fucking miles better book. Like, I talk about editing on this show and I say, cut this, cut this, cut this. Death of a thousand cuts, right? Tim Clare's brand is be tough on yourself when you're writing. Or be tough on your writing. Don't be tough on yourself. Be wonderful to yourself. You are gorgeous and deserve all the wonderful things in the world. But be tough on your writing. Cut that shit out. You think you've got 20,000 words? You've got three. But <laughs> all I can say is I'm really, really lucky that I've got amazing people like my agent and my editor to make me actually do that with my own work because it makes it miles better. It makes it so much better. Have you read a book ever that's all right, but you've thought this could lose a third and it would be so much better if they just stuck to the really good stuff? I don't need this 10,000 words banquet scene where they eat sumptuous cuts of veal i i know what wine is i know what sex is you could just have cut here well you know that my novel had all of that done and more and and what's left is is i think pretty i'm really chuffed with it i'm so excited i love being in delphine's world it's weird to me i had like this i, I think because i've had a cold this last week but i suddenly realized and i know it but i suddenly like you know, like sometimes when you get existential dread, when you realise you remember you're going to die. Sorry if those of you who've been trying to forget, but you just viscerally feel it and you feel cold and you can't concentrate on anything because you remember it in some kind of like marrow deep way. I remember that Delphine isn't real this week and I was so spun out because she's lived in my head for... Seven, seven odd years and she's as real to me as any person I've known from my past realer in some ways and that's not it sounds very precious when writers talk about that it doesn't it it sounds like they're suggesting their characters are somehow very richer than human beings that they've known right 
But it's just that the minds sort of that are that this that this this is why I'm really interested in speaking to neuroscientists about writing because this equipment we've got for processing fiction isn't that good at distinguishing the memories of fiction from actual events that we witnessed in terms of like if you do like an MRI scan on someone reacting emotionally to a film um, it, it won't necessarily be distinguishable from someone reacting to something happening in real life if it is sufficiently engaging and it I just realized I've kind of fucked my brain up because Delphine is stored in the part of my brain that like my granddad my late granddad is stored that's absolutely bananas and I'm no stranger to mental health issues as I've said so having peculiar thoughts and being weird and having aberrant non-neurotypical events happening in my old noggin it's not unusual for me but I just I it, it was so my brain so took it for granted that she was a real person that I felt remembering that she wasn't felt like I suddenly discovered I was on the Truman Show. It was such an odd spacing out experience. And the Ice House is about what happens after the big adventure. It's about what you live with. It's about after somebody's gone there and back again. How you get on with your life. I think... Have you read the end of The Lord of the Rings? It, I'm just... I've got it here. I'm just going to open it up and... I'm I'm, gonna, I'm about to read you the ending. Um, because... And so, spoiler alert, if you haven't... If you don't know how it ends. But, um... It feels to me... You know, for me, the, the the Lord of the Rings is a novel about the Great War, right? It's about surviving the war. I'm putting out a an interview on Monday, by the way, with a fantastic writer. And he we talk a bit about Lord of the Rings and um I won't won't say who it is yet, but if it's if Monday has happened then it'll already landed and you'll know. But he talked about Lord of the Rings and you know, what people have to do to do the right thing, to do good, the sacrifices that people have to make. And I think that it's, I feel to me, I read it, the lens that I put on when I read Lord of the Rings, and it's not just this, uh, as no book is, like allegory is just one way you can kind of pass something, but it's about, it's Tolkien emotionally pro processing his and the culture's experiences of the of the First World War. And for me, what's interesting is that thing when you get home and the other people haven't been through what you've been through and the inexpressibility of what we, I think, euphemistically call the horrors of war. It's really the horrors of being alive. The horrors of seeing that human beings are 
these fragile bags of meat and they break open and there's stuff inside them and they die and they all those men screaming for their mothers crying mother mother drowning in the mud and and then coming home and this idea of stiff upper lip the contrast between those two things grown men crying screaming calling for their mums saying saying mother mother and then we come home and they and we and we ossify them with this term hero you won't be forgotten you i think when we do that when we talk about sacrifice in war there's a real danger that we sanctify the slaughter of those who haven't yet been to war by making it seem somehow noble when it was just a grave, grave tragedy. So, at the end, here's the. F I'm going to read you the final paragraph of Lord of the Rings. So, Sam has come home, back to Hobbiton, and Frodo has been his friend, who he's gone on this journey with, was t was taken away, has been has been. You know, has gone with the elves. It's kind of metaphorically has died, but he's been taken on to the afterlife, basically. And he's home. He went on, and there was yellow light and fire within, and the evening meal was ready, and he was expected. And Rose drew him in and set him in his chair and put little... Eleanor on, upon his lap. He drew a deep breath. Well, I'm back, he said. Do you think he is back? I'm not sure he ever can come home. That's the thing that I get from that last line for me. He's seen too much. I'm not sure he ever truly can come home. And, and, and for me, what I wanted to write about with Delphine is that profound and strange alienation that comes from trauma, that comes from any kind of sudden, dramatic cleavage from normality how that makes things perma permanently weird i think from you know from my own sort of issues with struggling with mental health and breakdown it's funny how when you're in those spaces the whole world seems strange odd normal rituals the way people go about normality itself seems impossibly surreal and i think that's why i write fantasy because the world seems horribly hysterically real sometimes not real no it seems horribly hysterically normal normality seems a kind of i feel like it's like a kind of pathology sometimes when you're feeling ill people are well how about i read you the f how about i read you the very first bit of the ice house how about that that'd be a way of like nailing this down slightly 
Um, and you can see how it starts. But I, I, I wanted to just talk about... I wanted to give give us this character who has had to live her whole life with the fruits of this, quote, adventure, end quote, that she's been on. You know, like, you read so many kind of YA stories and children's stories where a, a character goes on a, a quest or deals with something or has some kind of mystical adventure. And we don't get very much about what how they... What happens for the rest of your life? And I know, like, a few authors have, like, dealt with this. I'm not suggesting I'm the first person to think of it but that was what I was interested in like how it's like going to the moon right and you come back and you've seen the earth from space and you realise how small it is and how we adjust these our whole reality is encompassed in this tiny fragile membrane of gas and you come back and nobody's acting like that and you feel like an alien on your own world and you, to a certain extent you are you go to if you go to the moon and walk on the moon you, you don't come back to your own earth i find that fascinating and i think it's the same with war sometimes for some people i think it can be the same with all sorts of traumas but at the same time i'm not writing grimdark you know i'm not writing something about how the world is shit how life is cheap. How there are villains out there who are going to get you. I don't believe it in any of that. And I sort of believe personally. And it might not come through in my writing. I hope my worlds are rich enough that actually some of the stuff I write contradicts my own personal beliefs, right? I, I, I hope people read my books and take completely the opposite um, messages from them that I would want to give sometimes i hope it's rich enough for those things to exist you know uh, that's the whole point of the dialectic of fiction for it to be rich enough for people to find different things in different characters for multiple voices to play off against each other but for me love is a real and important and essential thing and it's not woolly to talk about it it's not silly it's not twee it's not schmaltzy it's not saccharine love is the fundamental thing that we've got to do to each other we are very adept at making enemies out of each other and finding reasons why it's okay to hate why it's okay to other people, why it's okay to dehumanise and simplify people. And I do it all the time. I'm not having a go at anyone. I do it all the time with people who I see as my ideological enemies, and it's tough. And so I hope at the heart of everything I write is this deep belief in human beings and love and the power those things have and... I hope that there's hope in everything I write. But in any case, I'll just read you the first page of The Ice House. Uh, I hope you find it interesting. Delphine woke up and remembered. Thompson was dead. 
Her spectacles lay upside down on the bedside table, beside an ashtray of polished green alabaster. Her dressing gown still hung from its peg on the door, yellow silk brocade with black satin cuffs. The world was trudging on, callously normal. She lay there, letting the fact of his death sit on her chest, heavy, invisible. Eventually her bladder forced her up. She unhooked her stick from the end of the bed. Her knee wobbled. Bugger it all. In the bathroom she wetted a comb under the hot tap and hacked her white-grey hair into a semblance of a side parting, wincing as the teeth snagged in tangles. She took satisfaction in her discomfort. Each tug at her follicles felt like a little reprimand. She dragged some clothes on and rode the stairlift downstairs. The kitchen smelt of roast lamb. She carried the coffee pot to the sink and flushed the previous day's grounds, flinching at the cold water flowing over her swollen knuckles. A sunbeam lit a slow blizzard of dust. The little TV was still on, muted, yellow teletext subtitles flashing up under footage of jet fighters banking over the Gaza Strip. A tangle of maroon wool lay nuzzled up against the bread bin, capped with a plastic crochet hook. On the kitchen table was a heap of threshold correspondence she hadn't replied to. Physical letters and printed out emails, some marked with post-its. Cranks, mostly. A man from Arizona who believed the human genome had been corrupted by a race of biblical giants. A Portuguese student who kept sending her articles arguing that the moon was hollow. The remainder were folklorists, historians and archaeologists. Friendly, sincere people who didn't mind her peculiar questions about bat people or gateways to other worlds. Of course, she never told them what she knew. How do you explain that when you were a child, you stopped an invasion, led by an immortal aristocrat from a world that should not exist? How do you explain your memories of humanoid bat creatures with fangs and leathery wings, of towering minotaurs armed with flintlocks? How do you explain the insect that appears in your dreams, the dark hornet with a sting that turns people into something less and more than humans, the godfly? And how do you explain that one of those people was your father? It was quite obviously too much for an email. Better to stick to her cover story. She was just an eccentric old lady, writing a little volume on comparative mythology. Spread out across the rest of the table were OS maps of parts of Venezuela, the Siberian steppe and Canadian tundra. Her magnifying glass lay in a red leather slipcase. A lovely weighty one it was, mother of pearl handle and a grooved brass pommel shaped like an urn. An 18th birthday present from mother. Delphine walked to the back door and slid off her blue-green Carmichael tartan slippers. She unhooked the long cedar shoehorn from its spot next to the coats, rested a palm on the jam and slotted her feet into a pair of calfskin brogues. The ritual mollified her a bit. It was rather like turning a fried egg, and her fallen arches expanded and relaxed as they settled into the contours of the orthopaedic inserts. Not very practical for gardening, but she had a weakness for handsome footwear, a vice she called shoebris. She shuffled outdoors. The dawn air was chilly, fragrant. She stopped at the edge of the patio, one hand tucked inside her suede waistcoat, feeling like Napoleon on St Helena. She lit her pipe and took a few contemplative puffs. The sky was a bright uniform grey. Off in the east, the smudged gem of the sun. She gazed out across a havoc of weed-choked soil beds, brown puddles, a few sickly primroses, pebbles, pale grots of bird muck, cracked snail shells, oozing cables of mucus, wet moss and a frazzles packet snagged on a twig, opening and shutting its wet mouth in the breeze. Peas and broad beans soon. Turnips too. 
Maybe this year they wouldn't bother. She tapped a clump of speedwell with the tip of her stick, watched the little purple heads shiver. Gardening was a siege. You held out as best you could, but the city always fell in the end. On a green garden trolley wrapped in a Union Jack flag was the corpse of a Labrador. Her heart sank. There he was. And there he wasn't. Gone forever. Death. The absence always present. Oh, Thompson. As she watched, the trolley turned and began rolling down the garden towards the trees. I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you very much for listening to my podcast, Death of a Thousand Cuts, and listening to the episodes I've done this week about the honours and about the sequel, The Ice House. It's been a real treat to talk about my own work. Um, I love hearing about other people's work, but it's just made a nice change of pace, and it's helped remind me why I love writing and, and why I love particularly those books that I've been working on. I'm really happy with what I've written. Um, I'm excited about the world, and I'm genuinely excited and a little bit nervous to hear what people think of the new book and when people actually get to dive into this world that's been in my head for four years and get their own versions of Delphine and have their own experience and adventure there. I, you know, I'm always, I'm just very grateful that you listen to the podcast. I really am. Because I know that there's a, there's a kind of stereotype of the um, podcasting douche bro uh, and self-important man who makes a podcast and thinks what he says is very important. Um, But I feel... I feel very supported and, to be honest, very loved, but certainly very, just very enthused and supported by everyone who listens and all the nice things that you say to me and all the wonderful things you've done. So I just want to say thanks uh, sincerely. I hope that doesn't sound too schmaltzy or self-important, but it's just been, it's just great. And I love hearing from you. Um, I... I was speaking to someone in publishing recently. I'm not going to say who, uh, probably because you wouldn't necessarily know them, but also because I don't want to call them out. Just talking about books. And I mentioned, you know, in conversation, there was a few of us there, I mentioned in conversation that I I did a podcast. And he laughed. And he said, I've heard of those who... Who on earth listens to podcasts? And I said, well, actually, you know, they're quite a popular form nowadays. Quite a few people listen to podcasts and, um, you know, I listen to podcasts. I really enjoy it. You should try them out. You might enjoy it. And he said, so what's yours about? And I said, I do one about, you know, writing tips and, you know, to speak to authors. Uh, And he he laughed and said, that sounds like a bit of a bit of a waste of time and and I was like well no I I felt my face going a little bit sort of you know prickly like I could felt like I was having to you know I've been asked to step into the ring and I I said well you know I'm I'm really I actually you know really enjoy the community that's built up around my podcast I, I get to speak to authors all the time but also the listeners they're really engaged and I love 
speaking to them and um it's just really nice i i feel like i've got i feel like i've got a water cooler that i can meet up with my peers and we can chat about work and we can grumble about the boss or we can talk about something fun that we discovered or a, a hack that's made life easier and i just feel like i've got a community now i've got a watering hole i've um and he and, and he looked at me with this kind of dawning i guess skepticism and he said yeah but i bet it doesn't sell any books and i said well you know to me that's not necessarily the point and he said well yeah well it's lucky because i doubt any of those people would buy your book if you asked them and i said those people are my friends don't fucking insult them they'd buy my book if i asked them i bet they'd pre-order the ice house and he said bollocks and I hit him. It just, I just, you know, when they say like a red mist descends. I just I don't, one moment, I don't even remember it. Just one moment I was standing there in front of him. And the second he was laid out in the middle of the launch party. Um, with his, his glass of wine shattered on the floor. And I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was Ryoka or or blood, but it was everywhere, and people were screaming. And I and I and I ran. I ran away. Um, and uh, you know, I've kept. I've been watching the obituary notices in the bookseller, and I, I think he lived. But I wasn't going to let him speak that way about you, because I knew that if I asked you to pre-order the ice house I knew you would so it's not for me ladies and gentlemen it's it's to prove that bully wrong um I mean I know I I know I I know I hit I struck him I assault physically assaulted him but I think in many ways I did that to protect your honor I'm gonna put links in the show notes to how you can pre-order the ice house um i'd really appreciate it if you did um it'll allow you to get it in the first week and as i've said before if you pre-order via um this little indie bookshop called mr b's emporium i will pop in to see them before i um it, it's released and i'll sign all the copies that they've got that they're going to send out so you should get a signed copy if you do it via them and you'll also be supporting a wonderful um, independent bookshop uh also if they get at least 100 pre-orders then i will produce like a little bit of extra in world stuff something i can fold up and put in with each book so you'll get a little extra exclusive signed something as well um for all those copies but you can also pre-order through somewhere like the, the Wordery if you prefer, or if that is uh, more convenient for you in the part of the world you're in. Um, or you can pre-order by phoning your local bookshop and placing an order with them. Um, you can also use places like Hive in the UK and IndieBound in the US to do so. 
uh, as well. And if none of those appeal and you really, really want to, you could pre-order through Amazon. I would say if you want ebooks, you can also go through Kobo if you'd rather avoid Amazon. Now, somebody emailed me this morning and um, I'm going to read this out purely like self in a self-serving way but um uh she sent me a uh, an email with the subject line road to 1500 exclamation mark exclamation mark exclamation mark and it says hello just pre-ordered the ice house and i can't wait to get my hands on it i've gotten so much inspiration and encouragement from your podcast and couch to 80k boot camp when i heard that we had a shot at getting you on the bestseller list. I immediately paused the podcast and went to Mr. B's to submit my pre-order, not only to support you, but also to support genre fiction and artists creating the weird things we all love. Thank you, and please give us an update on the road to 1,500. Now, the reason that she's saying thank you very much, by the way, uh, that was from uh, Kristen. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Now, the reason that she's saying the road to 1,500, if you haven't listened to that episode, is because I spoke to someone in publishing and they said that um, the threshold for getting on the British bestseller list for hardbacks is probably, to be absolutely sure, 1,500 in a week. 1,500 books sold. Although it depends on how many books are selling that week. Sometimes a book gets onto the bestseller list having sold only 900 in a week now only 900 is still a lot a lot of literary fiction novels don't sell 900 in their whole lifespan but it occurred to me that just over on average just over 6,000 people download the podcast every week if one in four people listening do that I do pre-order my book um then it will be a bestseller on the week of release and I will for the rest of my life have been a best-selling author this show will n- then have a title that says, my name's Tim Clare, best-selling author and host of... Blah, blah, blah. So I'll never shut up about it. But I just wanted to read out Kristen's email, not because... Well, just to show that's... Just to, just to set the standard, really. As though that's the model listener right there. It sounds like... It, I admit, having read it out, sounds made up. Sounds like I've written that. And just to put the old emotional thumb screws on you. But um, I haven't. That's a real human being. Um, wow. <laughs> it's really lovely. But look, I I think it is probably a, a crazy and egotistical target to go for 1,500 sales in my book in a week. It, it's a lot less than what the honours uh, has sold so far, incidentally, but it's, so it's it's but it's not the thing is it's not actually a crazy number it's just getting all those sales to happen in one week we probably won't make it i want to say we i'm making out this is like some kind of team effort that's my favorite thing about this is i'm going hey gang if we all work together we can make the thing happen the thing that benefits me i know right i know but what do you say Tim Clare's got a baby to feed. Um, she's a toddler now. Um, no, I mean, of course, Suki, my uh, two-year-old daughter, will be fine if I don't get on the bestseller lists with my novel for a while. But we don't know how long writing is an increasingly difficult career to sustain. So if you would like to guarantee 
the future of my darling daughter and make me hugely happy and get a fantastic book, possibly signed if you get it through Mr B's Emporium. If you've listened to these episodes this week and you've enjoyed my work and you've gone, fuck, Tim's thing sounds interesting. I'd like to read that sometime. All I'm asking is that you, if you think it'll make you happy, if you can afford it, you do that now. You click one of the links below or you phone up your local bookshop and you order the honours and especially, especially, especially pre-order the Ice House. I would love that and make me really happy. Of course, you don't have to do it. This podcast is free and I'm, it's always going to be free as long as I make it because I want there's I want stuff to be available and I want to support writers. I enjoy that um, and uh, that's just genuinely from the heart I enjoy it. And also, if you'd like to support me, that would be the way to do it. And thank you to all of you who've done it already. Can we make it? It's an interesting experiment. My, am I, what am I going to predict at the moment? I mean, I'm a naturally a pessimist, but could 1,500 listeners, lots of people buy, lots of people buy um, authors that I've had on the show, actually. I, I know because people tell me and I, I can see who, when someone clicks for a link, I can see who's bought a book. Lots of people buy authors who appear on this show. So it's possible. But it may also be because they're more enthused by their books than mine. Um, it's possible. It's possible. And that's enough, I think. Right, I'm going to close things there. You know the score. I just want to say thank you for letting me do this this week. I hope you have a fantastic writing week. Next week, I've got such a good guest on. I'm so excited about it. I've been doing some interviews. I'm really psyched. I'm going to put up a uh, another first page in a while um doing some critique stuff because i haven't done that in a while and i know you love that and you know get in touch timclairpert.co.uk click on the contact me link in the right i love to hear from you i get letters from you i get letters from listeners every day literally every day now and um it's fantastic and i love hearing from all of you thank you so much um exciting things in the pipeline and exciting things I hope for you. And if you've been doing NaNoWriMo, I know I ragged on it, but well done. And I hope that you haven't worked yourself too hard and I hope that it's been fruitful for you. And if you haven't done NaNoWriMo, go and do 10 minutes of writing today on any subject you like. 10 timed minutes of a free write. It'll make you feel better. Right, I'm going to spend the afternoon writing. Love you very, very much. Bye.